Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us today. Busy program ahead. As mentioned at 1.30 today is the news conference with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. We will bring that to you live as they reveal the latest numbers for COVID-19 in this province. Also coming up on this program, we're going to take a look at a new Ipsos poll on the psychological impact of COVID-19 with people isolating, some cases being in quarantine. We're also going to open up the phone lines on that. And a bit later on in the show, we take a look at a letter that has been written when it comes to migrant workers in this province and several groups saying they're very concerned about some workers with precarious immigration status at this point. So we're going to talk to them as well. And Jason Tetro will be here a bit later on in the program. He's joining us for a full half hour to answer your questions on COVID-19. First, though, as you've been hearing in the news, hundreds of thousands of Canadians have applied for pandemic-related emergency relief in just the first few hours today. The application process started this morning. It's based so far on your birth month as they try and make sure there's not a complete overwhelming of the system. We are expecting some new rules to be announced about the emergency funding as well that should open the door to many more Canadians being able to apply for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Uh, Let's check in though to see uh, what uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is saying about this and what we're learning so far now that that portal has been opened. Joining me on the line is Annie Dormuth, uh, the Director of Provincial Affairs in Alberta with CFIB. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, are you hearing uh, stories or reports back from business owners who have tried, who have gone onto the portal today to get the emergency funding? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that uh, my own husband, who's a small business owner who had to temporarily close his business, was trying to access the program actually this morning and was unfortunately kicked out, even though his uh, birthday is in between March and uh, in March there. So uh, he was unable to, but I think he's going to try back a little bit later. So already hearing some troubles of uh, those in the birth months of January, February and March, kind of getting kicked out of the uh, portal and being told to check back later. Hmm. And we're hearing that, even seeing some of that on social media, uh, similar scenarios to what you just described. Uh, Some fortunately saying, hey, it was easy. I went in, went through the steps and uh, and registered. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, many others saying that uh, they got error messages or they weren't able to access uh, the site today. Uh, If we go to a shift to in a perfect world where the site's working, what do you think about the actual way that the money is being doled out or how you can apply or what's needed to qualify for the emergency relief? For sure. Um, the CFIB, you know, saw this when it was first announced, a definitely a significant step in addressing the growing economic emergency that has come with COVID-19. And we are particularly pleased that the federal government did indicate that employers will not have to lay off a worker to allow them to qualify for the benefit. And again, today, as you mentioned, the prime minister did announce some uh, much needed kind of clarification about the program. And uh, we will await for further details of that. But opening up the uh, program to those uh, businesses that are still working, even if it is only 10 hours a week, would be definitely a great financial help for small businesses. I know one of the pain points we kept hearing from small businesses about this program was the caveat that you had to have zero income. And for those businesses that are able to stay open, that are still operating, you know, just at a much reduced hours to maybe accommodate, you know, a couple online sales or things like that, I think opening it up to uh, to those businesses will definitely be more helpful. 
Because when it was first announced as well, there was the talk of or the the requirement of you had to prove that year over year your business was down, your revenues were down 30 percent, which raised a lot of questions about, well, what if somebody was a brand new business or they opened within the last six months or if you couldn't prove that because your, your wages or your revenues came from dividends? Have those things been worked out, do you think? For sure. And I think you're referring to the Canadian emergency wage subsidy there. And that is where you need to prove that 30% revenue loss threshold, which, again, we have been hearing from a lot of small businesses that simply that disqualifies them from the program, especially those businesses that can't prove it or are seasonal, have fluctuating revenues, and furthermore, that have simply not been in operation for, you know, a year. So we have been advocating for those changes to the Canadian emergency wage subsidy. And again, that is at the 75% wage subsidy that the federal government is offering. And we do encourage the uh, government to provide greater flexibility for those businesses that, you know, can't prove that 30% loss in revenue, which we have identified with a lot of small businesses is a pain point and will disqualify them from accessing that program. Absolutely. So with the the emergency relief fund now, uh, how does it work or or are your businesses working it out then if employees, if if they have had to lay off employees, even with the wage subsidy being available and the emergency relief, if they've still had to lay off employees, those employees then apply for EI. Uh, Do we know how that works out as far as do they then uh, also uh, they can apply for the emergency relief fund? Uh, Because with all of this, looking ahead and hoping for the rehiring and looking to when we're on the other side of this thing. For sure. As I understand it, you can only access the CERB, and that's the Canadian Emergency Benefit Program, or you can access EI. So you cannot access both of those programs at the same time. So employees will have to, you know, decide which program is better suited for them. For the 75% wage subsidy, we have been hearing mixed reviews um, from small businesses You know, for the businesses that say it will be helpful, a lot of them say that they will help retain some staff still on the payroll. So it is showing from our members that, yes, some will use it and it can avoid those crucial layoffs. However, we are getting a lot of feedback that saying that, you know, the wage subsidy will simply not be helpful to employers simply because they have already, you know, had to lay off staff. And uh, they can't wait up to six weeks for that wage subsidy to kick in. That is far too long to avoid crucial layoffs. Uh, Right. And I'm even seeing on social media a lot of uh, business owners saying it looks good on paper, but that six weeks that you just mentioned or that lapse in time, that's the important time and you can't just wait around for it. Exactly. And that's what we're hearing, you know, waiting six weeks. I mean, between that time, we don't know how long this prolonged economic emergency will continue. And in between that time, we're already seeing, you know, every every week when we conduct our weekly surveys, um, we're seeing more increases in temporary layoffs and we expect that to continue. So definitely that six weeks to even access the program is far too long. Uh, Do you think that the way this is being done, having the application process and having the qualifiers is the right way? Because there certainly has been a lot of talk about or debate about this is one way to do it or the government could have just cut every Canadian a check for $2,000 and then reassessed in a couple of weeks or a few weeks. Definitely. We are seeing, you know, especially on the wage subsidy side, um, a lot of regulatory, almost red tape uh, headaches that small businesses simply don't need right now. You know, especially having to, you know, prove that loss of revenue every time you reapply to receive the wage subsidy is definitely going to turn people away from it. 
So I think governments moving forward just need to ensure that, you know, there are clear guidelines out there and the process is made easier for small businesses. Definitely a lot of confusion right now. And uh, we will see what uh, what more details come out of expanding the Canadian emergency benefit um, to those employers who are maybe just working 10 hours a week and receiving some income. All right. We will leave it there. Annie Dorma, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Annie Dormuth is the Director of Provincial Affairs in Alberta for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to hear from you. Are you somebody who has applied for CERB? Did you get onto the portal this morning? If so, how was the how was it? Did you get through? Were you able to apply and register with the program? Well, coming up this half hour, we are going to open the phone lines once again to find out how you are doing as we enter into another week of working from home for many, not working for many others, social isolation for all of us, and social distancing, physical distancing, if you are still going out and if you're making those essential trips to the grocery store, pharmacy, or what have you. But first, let's take a look at exactly how COVID-19 is having an impact on us psychologically. And and that is the subject of a new poll done by Ipsos Public Affairs. And CEO Daryl Bricker joins us on the line now. Uh, Daryl, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me on. So you asked people exactly kind of how they're dealing with social isolation and the effects of, of being isolated. What was the, the big takeaway from this? Well, the first thing is they are actually concerned about other people more than they're concerned about themselves at the moment, particularly if people are uh, vulnerable or weak. And this is coincidental with other things that we've been seeing in, in, the, in the research, which is that people don't feel that this disease is having the same effect on them as it's having on other people. So we start off from there, but then after that, we get uh, very concerned about, uh, about uh, getting back to our our regular life. We're getting impatient to get back to our regular life. And it's not just Canadians, it's people uh, all over the world. Hmm. Which isn't a huge surprise, I imagine, in that uh, people don't like change at the best of times, let alone when you're forced into it. Yeah, and and when we talk to some uh, social psychologists and behavioral uh, researchers about this, this, this you know, getting knocked out of your routine is disconcerting for people and stressful for people. So the desire to get back to their normal life is um, is definitely there. But there's also a, an economic rationale that goes along with it. And, and the reason is because people don't necessarily feel that the disease is going to affect them personally other than through financial um, financial impacts. So people want to get back to their day-to-day life uh, also because they want to get back to their jobs. Right, which I found interesting in the findings, because when you ask people to if they were anxious about their health or concerned about their health, that one didn't rank as high as the the being impatient to get back to normal life, which I think health officials would prefer if we were a little bit more concerned about our health as well when it comes to taking all of the measures to stop this thing. Yeah, and the reason for that is because the numbers in Canada, I mean, you know, a health expert would probably say they're very large, but, you know, within a within a population of 38 million people, they're not really that large in the sense that you don't you probably don't know somebody who has been seriously affected by the disease. You might know somebody who has COVID, but probably pretty unlikely uh, uh, that you, uh, you're confronting anybody in your day-to-day life who does. Uh, but you know everybody, and probably including yourself, who's staying at home now because it's over 75% of Canadians now say they are staying home. And the impact on, on you in terms of uh, your ability to work and earn a living 
has been significant. So even if you haven't been affected by the disease, and even if you don't know anybody who's been affected by the disease, you certainly feel the effects of it in terms of your own income and your ability to work. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, that uh, is uh, shows in the numbers for sure. Uh, spending time with family, I've been seeing on social media uh, people saying uh, they've been eating better at home, they've been spending more time with family, It's they've been reconnecting. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are others who are, are going a little bit stir-crazy doing that as well. But how did how did the numbers come in when it came with that, that extra time people now have with family members? Oh, well, when it, when it comes to uh, staying at home with your family, yeah, people are not too bad about that, but it, it's, not as, uh, it's not as strong as you would think. It's just above 30%. And actually, uh, not everybody's enjoying it is the other part uh, that, that we notice too, uh, is that it's, it's also creating stress in the household as well. So, you know, this, there will be always somebody on Facebook or Twitter or whatever who's, who's going to be talking about what a wonderful time this is to reconnect or what a great time it is to learn a new skill like a, maybe a new musical instrument. That's not how people are feeling these days. They're stressed. They want to get back to their day-to-day lives. Um, you know, some people may be able to find a, a silver lining uh, in this cloud, but for most people, it's a pretty dark cloud. Uh, and I would agree with that. Even the open lines that we've been doing last week, a gentleman called in and said, oh, it's great. I'm doing some work around the house. I'm, I'm doing this. And I said to him, well, you must not be financially worried about it then, or you're financially you're okay. And he said, yeah, I've squirreled away money. I'm fine, which I think makes a huge difference compared to the very the hundreds of thousands of people that flocked onto the government help website today who aren't in that position. Yeah, and that shows you, uh, I think uh, the last I saw was 250,000, it's probably more by, more than that by now. But wait, just think about it, Joe. In the last two weeks, we've had 2 million people apply for employment insurance. Yeah. 2, two million. That's, a, that's an incredible number. So, no, there are not a lot of people at home, you know, valuing this wonderful time that they find with their, with their families and, 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 and uh, their hobbies. Uh, there's an awful lot of people who are sitting at home anxious to get their lives back and particularly anxious to get their their jobs and their incomes back. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect as well between what we're doing and what the advice has been as far as the recommendations at this point for physical distancing if you do go out to stay home if you can. Uh, did you ask people about the restrictions, whether or not uh, people uh, think that they're enough too much or if they don't like them or like them? Well, they, um, they don't mind them. Uh, in, in fact, there's strong support for everything that has to do with social distancing and, and increasing support for everything that has to do with social distancing. Because the belief among the public is, is if we get this right, then we can get back to our regular lives. And the interesting thing is that people don't feel it as something that needs to be done to protect them. It's something to, that needs to be done for everybody else. In other words, it's the idea is that if we can, I'm doing the right things, if everybody else would just do the right things, then we'd be able to get our lives back on track. So the uh, the, the the message on the social distancing that's coming out from governments uh, tends to be a little off uh, off kilter, in the sense that it's really about you know you need to protect yourself and you need to protect your neighbors from this health effect. Really, probably what would be a more effective message from governments would be to say, look, if we want to get back on track, you want to get back to work, we want to get our our, our province or our city or our community back on track you need to do these kinds of things rather than saying, hey, you're going to save a life. Even though there's a lot of people who believe that we need to do that too. It's this, it's this, this being locked down and, and uh, being put in a situation where we can't earn a living and which our livelihood is imperiled that's really created the, 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 uh, the deep concern around the country.
And that does seem like an interesting one, too, because even today with the bit of the change from uh, the Canadian, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, our Canadian health officer, saying, well, actually, if you wear a homemade mask, it's not going to protect you. But if you are an asymptomatic carrier or if you're out there, it will protect other people. And, and that's really the, what was put out to people where I, I still think there was there are probably people who think that that would that would protect them and that they're, they're doing it for that reason, not that they're they're wearing that mask to protect others. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting twist that they decided to put on it. I, I don't know that it was a necessary twist. Uh, there, there are things that come out of government sometimes where I sort of scratch my head and I say, do, do you really actually understand how people are perceiving what you're saying? If she would have just said, yeah, sure, wear a mask. If you think uh, making a homemade, uh, wearing a homemade mask makes you feel more comfortable, then you should do that. Why they had to add the tack on on the, on the end of it to say, all you're doing is because maybe you're infected, you're going to protect somebody else. Does it really matter? Does it really matter? I mean, they should have just said, if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, just wear a mask. Uh, interesting findings. Uh, we will leave it there. Daryl Bricker, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Joe. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. So we are going to take your calls on this, entering another week for many people working at home, many others trying to figure out when their next paycheck will come. And a reminder, we will bring you the update from Dr. Bonnie Henry, as well as Adrian Dix at 1.30 today. That will be live right here on this station. First, though, let's head to the United States and take a look at a grim number. The U.S. passing the 10,000 death mark in that country. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that and reaction to that is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Good afternoon. Uh, That's uh, not the number of people uh, we're hoping for that, uh, according to the John Hopkins map, uh, the United States now going above 10,000 deaths. So how was the reaction to that? Well, the reaction is essentially that this is what was uh, what was expected, and it is only going to get worse. Healthcare experts uh, and policy experts have been saying that, based on the data and the numbers that have been coming in over the last couple of days or so, uh, these numbers were in line with that, and they are only going to get worse as we see areas like New York City, uh, Detroit, and areas in Louisiana really start to reach their peaks, which could happen later this week. And once that happens, uh, we could actually see the death toll on a daily basis rise to over a thousand and do, do we know at this point we've been watching the states like new york and connecticut and in that part of the united states is that still where we're focused on as far as looking at the the, the most cases and and where we're going to see that number grow yeah, I mean, look, New York City and New York State remain the epicenter for this virus across the United States. Just with the new numbers that came out today, you know, almost uh, just over 8,000 cases reported in a 24-hour period in New York. The death toll over 600. The case toll, uh, the case load in New York State is over 130,000. There's only 350,000 reported cases in the U.S. So that still is the epicenter, but there are a number of concerning areas for healthcare experts, and that includes New Jersey, Michigan, California. Louisiana, Florida, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Illinois, all of them are now reporting more than 10,000 cases. And in a couple of cases, we're looking at new caseloads of more than 1,000 per day uh, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Michigan. So there, you know, New York has been the epicenter for so long now that 
we need to start looking elsewhere in the country to see that peaks and curves are only just beginning right now. Hmm. And uh, earlier today, uh, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, had his news daily news conference. Uh, he talked about a bit of optimism, though, saying that the increase in hospitalizations uh, was was down or or at least there was a bit of a better picture there. Yeah, he's saying that they could potentially be either at their peak or the apex, as he calls it, or uh, they could be somewhere in a plateau right now because for the last two days, the death numbers, while increasing by 600, are, have been the same and they haven't been uh, kind of surpassing each other. And also saying that the number of ICU uh, inpatients are down uh, and the number of people needing to be intubated is also down. So the governor looking at very, very early and preliminary data to say that this could potentially be that moment of peak. But we've seen this for the last couple of weeks in the U.S. where numbers will kind of uh, stave off for a little bit and then all of a sudden they'll peak or they'll drop and it's kind of this uh, this uh, seesaw that goes back and forth. It's, it's still very early, but these, these cities are expected to hit a peak this week. So this could be a good a bit of good news for New York and it just gives you know the rest of the country something to watch to see what they could potentially be in for. And what about uh, medical equipment and supplies of medical equipment? So this is still a concern across the United States. The federal government still uh, maintains their stance that they are not the backs, uh, that they rather are the backstop for uh, states and their stockpiles should be reserved as stockpiles and, uh, you know, only for emergency use. And states are saying, look, this is beyond emergency use. We're running out of uh, supplies. Uh, Louisiana and uh, New Jersey and New York are saying, look, we've only got a couple of days left worth of gowns and masks and ventilators. Uh, and there is an urgent need now for these things to kind of be shipped across the the country. So Ford uh, Motor Company says they're going to start developing ventilators and they could get, you know, thousands of them made, but they may not be made until May, meaning that this could put further crises and, and, and uh, further issues on that supply line uh, for the next couple of weeks for cities that are needing it. It's still a, a dire situation when it comes to all PPE and ventilators. Uh, and what about the the what's being done as far as trying to flatten that curve and stop that curve? Because it seems like there's a real patchwork of some states do have the stay at home orders that we saw this past weekend. Uh, a lot of states that were exempting religious gatherings and people really showing no regard for this whatsoever. Yeah, and this has kind of been an issue from day one because states do this on their own. The federal government can issue a guideline. They can issue what they would like to see happen, but it really is left up to the governor. And in a lot of cases, it's being left up to the local and county governments to be able to implement these stay-at-home orders. And there are about a dozen states that either don't have a rule in place or it's kind of lax. Over the weekend, as we saw, a number of religious institutions opened their doors, allowed for gatherings more than 10, which goes against the CDC. But then we also saw in Georgia, government... Uh, Governor Brian Kemp decided he was going to open up the beaches to allow people to, quote unquote, exercise and go and get some fresh air. And within a couple of hours, those beaches were packed and we saw groups of dozens or more hanging out uh, in the sand and playing in the water. Uh, so it is concerning for healthcare officials because they feel that these areas could end up being petri dishes that allow for these uh, uh, kind of hot spots and viral outbreaks to continue to spread. And that negates the efforts on behalf of other states where they're really doing what they can to ensure that the curve of the spread slows down. Well, and we already saw that, didn't we, with spring break in Miami and a lot of the students who, who didn't have a care in the world and then came back and dozens of them tested positive. 
And it's the same thing that we saw in Texas as well. There was a group who went down to uh, to Cabo and they came back. A number of them, uh, they had chartered a flight. A number of them have now tested positive. But Texas, again, a state that's leaving it up to individual municipalities and, and localities to implement these kinds of, of rules. And it really puts, uh, you know, problems in place, especially when you've got a number of these large cities that share a border with another state that may not have these rules in place. It's very easy for somebody asymptomatic or even symptomatic to cross back and forth and further spread this which is why healthcare experts are saying we can anticipate and expect a rollout of these uh, kind of curves and peaks that could potentially last for months down the rest of the calendar. And are you seeing cases as well, like you talked about with medical equipment, if we're talking about masks and ventilators, uh, are we not also going into territory where doctors and hospitals are going to have to start prioritizing who gets a ventilator and who gets what treatment? Yeah, and this is stuff that has been mentioned now through a couple of hospital systems in the Northeast as well as the uh, U.S. Southeast, where hospitals are essentially putting together a procedure and kind of a plan Z just in case. Uh, you know, they're saying, you know, if somebody's older, if somebody uh, has a respiratory illness and it could potentially be terminal, if somebody has cancer, these could be uh, uh, patients who are not going to be intubated and they're going to be given essentially a palliative care, uh, saying that it might make more sense to put the efforts onto somebody who has a better chance at surviving and may have a longer life. These are plans that hospital staff are trying to grapple with and that families are trying to grapple with. But it shows that when you have a country with a private healthcare plan uh, and, a, and a federal government who hasn't done their, you know, uh, what they can to ensure that stockpiles at the local level and the federal level are maintained uh, at an adequate level, you run into these kinds of crises, which is why we have healthcare experts saying at a best case scenario, a quarter million people could die from this disease. And and when do you expect to hear from President Trump on this again? So, uh, I mean, outside of the couple of tweets that he has made today, we are expecting the coronavirus task force to meet sometime around five o'clock, usually ends up being a little later than that. Uh, we can anticipate that the president is probably going to face more questions on his uh, continued pushing for uh, the use of therapeutics that have not been proven uh, in the coronavirus uh, situation yet. Uh, he's been, you know, really pushing these these two drugs, an anti-malarial drug and a second drug, saying they could work. Also noting that he's not a doctor, but says that he has a belief in these drugs. That very well could take uh, the brunt of questioning today uh, as it did yesterday. All right. We will leave it there. Reggie, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. A reminder, uh, in about 15 minutes from now, we will take you live to today's news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix with the very latest COVID-19 numbers in BC. That is set to start uh, around 1.30. So again, we will bring that to you as it is happening. First, though, we want to check in with a group called Sanctuary Health, and they are raising some concerns about workers that could be in a position of having a precarious immigrant status. And joining me on the line is a member of Sanctuary Health, Byron Cruz. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, what are your concerns about people who are in Canada who are, might now find themselves struggling financially because of this, uh, but but don't have access to the same government help or revenue that others might? Thank you very much for the question. Yes, we have been uh, in touch with many families and workers who have precarious immigration status. Their situation was uh, really hard before the crisis, and now it's worse uh, because uh, they are now uh, just using the last few cents that they have. At this time, we are supporting almost a uh, hundred families in terms of food, and we are concerned that very soon, in a few days, we might see the few 
families uh, with precarious immigration status being homeless. And and we first kind of met you or, and got to, to know more about your group when the raid happened at Hastings Park. So are you talking about workers that would be in a similar situation to that? Uh, yes, definitely we will be. Uh, they have been vulnerable uh, for many years, but now their vulnerabilities are worse. And they don't have uh, any any money now to pay to pay rent, and they we receive questions constantly. They said, "What can I do? Because I don't have rent anymore." I, they already talked to the landlords, and the landlords uh, don't have much information. But for sure that this uh, help that has been offered uh, in terms of rent will not reach this uh, population. And then at this time, we are very concerned in terms of food as well. We are trying our best as a, as a collective to support families who have kids at home. We are supporting them uh, with food every week, but there are so many more. We have a network, but there are so many more of families in the same situation. And we have also uh, raised the awareness about um, <clears throat> the health, access to the healthcare system. It is very confusing. There is no much information about the healthcare system. They already have a lot of problems accessing healthcare because it's uh, expensive, but at the same time, fears about being uh, reported to Canada borders. And for when we're talking about people that are in this situation, is it people who have come to Canada as refugees or have come to Canada and maybe didn't go through the legal channels of being an immigrant or who are waiting for their immigration status to be approved? Uh, we have different paths of immigration in this uh, population. Some of them are refugee claimants. Anyone who doesn't have a, a um, permanent residence is, has some precarious immigration status. Then we have, uh, we have people who are refugee claimants. We have people who cross the border and they haven't been able to, uh, to start their case because all the offices are closed. And also we have people who, for some reason, on, in terms of the unjust immigration system, they couldn't stay here. They couldn't win their immigration case. Then they decided to stay here. We have people whose uh, working permit expire. We have people, we have international students as well who are in very precarious situation right now because their working and study visa expire. We have people who are also in terms of a sponsorship and people who are under the humanitarian and sponsorship application process. And, and so in that scenario, if somebody was, say, couldn't pay the rent, uh, I mean, would they not fall under the eviction freeze and that landlords have been told not to, that they can't evict people during this pandemic? That's something that is in paper, that the, vulnerable, the main vulnerability there is that the, the landlord might call authorities, right? And if someone doesn't pay the rent. And then um, it is uh, it is very scary. It is definitely scary. And we had a, an informal uh, chat with them, uh, the city last week, and we expressed our the city of Vancouver last week, and we expressed our concern to them. And we are asking for some uh, also practical uh, and pragmatic solutions to this. Can, can we access uh, city funding in terms of? Uh, of subsidies for housing for two or three months, or can we have a, there are many hotels who are empty now. I, 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 it's hard to say that, but I will, because a family leaving their home is going to be hard, 
but we need to have some pragmatic solutions as well at this time. And would it be different in this scenario if somebody was found that they didn't apply properly for immigration status or they were denied uh, in before a pandemic, before this pandemic happened, would they not have just been sent back or been sent back uh, to their home country? Whereas now, I can't imagine people are being deported. There, I mean, there are no flights in many cases. People wouldn't be sent back during a pandemic, would they? I think during this time, CBSA delayed the the um, the deportations uh, for a few weeks. Then it is uh, it is one of the uh, root causes, right? That why people are also in a very hard in the, in the limbo, and that's why we have been uh, uh, prioritizing our main uh, demand of a status for all. It's time to regularize immigration status as uh, Portugal did last week, that they decided to give uh, also citizenship rights to everyone in the country right now to deal with this situation because it's worse if people don't have access to health care. It's worse if people don't have access to housing in terms of being another bomb to explode in terms of infection of COVID. All right. We will leave it there, Byron. Uh, I'm sure we will talk to you uh, about this again. Uh, but thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thank you so much and see you soon. Okay. Byron Cruz is a member of Sanctuary Health, raising concerns about many workers in this province. All right, so we just heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix taking a look at the latest numbers when it comes to COVID-19 in this province. Dr. Henry saying there have been 63 new cases during the past two days. That's 26 cases Saturday, 37 on Sunday. That means 1,266 test positives in BC. Uh, But on the bright side as well, 783 people in BC have fully recovered from the virus. There has however, been one more community death, and that is the death of a man in his 40s, and that is the only death from COVID-19 in the past two days. There are 140 people in hospital, 72 are in the ICU. Let's bring in Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's been listening along uh, to these details. Jason, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Oh, great to be with you again. So what do these numbers tell us? Well, we're back on track, aren't we? Um, I mean, I know it's going to sound strange, but the reality is that we're seeing a much lower number on a daily basis. Um, And if you were to look at sort of other pathogens that come around on a seasonal basis, you would be seeing the same type of numbers. Um, So in that context, what British Columbia has done is they've taken this um, pandemic virus And through the use of the social distancing and being very good about, you know, trying not to spread it to others, they've got it to a point where we're seeing the same kind of um, numbers that you would see with seasonal coming up into the healthcare environment. Because remember, we're targeted testing now and not just testing everybody. And this is giving us a really good understanding of um, how important the virus is um, in the community, but also how important it is uh, when it comes to, you know, the healthcare strain. And so can we take these numbers? Because I guess the, the trouble is you don't want people to feel like we've done everything and we're done. Because even Dr. Bonnie Henry said several times in the news conference today, uh, this is still critical time for that physical distancing to continue, for people to continue doing everything they can to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, Yeah, actually, it's even more critical right now. Um, You know, I'm hearing the words exit strategy more often than I'd like to hear. We're not there yet. 
Um, what we are doing right now is we are at a point where we have a good feel. We're sort of in that equilibrium and if you will. And what we need to do now is we need to give it some time so that the cases that sort of have been presenting themselves can get better. As you know, the numbers of people who are recovered are just increasing and increasing. That's wonderful. But when we start getting to a point where more people are getting better than perhaps showing up on the targeted uh, testing list as positive, then it means that maybe we've turned that corner. So we're right now in an equilibrium. So eventually we're going to get to a point where we're in a better place. Then we can start talking about exit strategies. Now, is this going to be in a month or two? I can't really tell you because it's all up to you. Right, which is what we've been told uh, time and time again, and thankfully and reminded uh, from the health officials. Is it looking too far ahead? Somebody texted me and asking uh, to ask you or thought they had heard you talking about the current flu bug and the current flu viruses and whether or not we should be concerned about those also Mm -hmm. being a pandemic strain. Oh, uh, it's because um, uh, if you remember the pandemic back in 2009, 2010, right? Um, That was what we called H1N1 PDM. It was a pandemic strain. Well, it didn't just go away. It actually became part of all the other flu viruses that circulate. So if you remember when you get the vaccine, there are four uh, that you get. There are two Bs, there's an H3N2, and then there's this H1N1. Well, that's the pandemic because it comes around every single year. And so we have the pandemic strain coming around every single year, even though we no longer treat it like a pandemic strain. And this is one of the futures that we might end up with with this with respect to this virus is that instead of it just going away like it did with SARS, it may continue to cycle and become seasonal. And then we're just going to call it the cold, flu, COVID, norovirus, measles season. All right. Um, We've also talked about, and uh, Dr. Uh, Tam talked about this, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked about this during the conference today. Um, And again, not that we're out of the woods, we're still very much fighting this thing, but it seems like what we're doing in BC seems to be working much better than other cases when you look to the states that has now surpassed the 10,000 mark as far as deaths caused by this. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Well, I mean, it just comes down to one thing, and that is as soon as we found out that the virus was in British Columbia and then there was community spread, in other words, you couldn't trace it back to a cruise ship or to someone who had traveled, then it was necessary for um, the closures to begin. Now, initially, it was very light, but then as the cases started to move into the exponential phase, that's when we started to see the lockdowns happening. That's what's supposed to happen. It happened with SARS in Toronto back in 2003. Nobody remembers, but that's exactly what you do. And so China, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, they've all gone through it. They all knew what to do. Dr. Henry has gone through this. She knew what to do. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so all the positivity that's coming out of British Columbia in comparison to what happened in the States, where basically they just reopened beaches. Right. Um, Take a listen, if you can, because the topic of masks has come up again, and there's uh, a bit of a change in advice and some confusion. So wearing a non-medical mask in the community has not been proven to protect the person wearing it. It is an additional way that you can protect others. Wearing a non-medical mask in the community does not mean you can back off the public health measures that we know work to protect you. So you must continue to practice physical distancing and good hygiene. 
So that's Dr. Tam saying that, yeah, if people wear these non-medical masks in public, you could Mm -hmm. stop the spread. It's not going to save you. You still need to do all of those other measures, but it could stop the spread. So if that's the case, why weren't we told to do that all along? Well, we have. I mean, anybody who's talked to me has already heard many, many, many times. I tell people to use a scarf to protect themselves. I've been doing this every single year. The difference is that we're facing this COVID-19 and all of a sudden everybody wants to wear a mask, but nothing has changed. It's just that our vision or our interpretation of what we've been saying has changed. So I have said for years and years, it's in my books, that if you're out there in cold and flu season, you have a scarf because that's going to help to protect your nose and your mouth from droplets from other people. You still want to stay that six feet away from them. That's never changed. You want to make sure that if you happen to be sick, either you're staying at home or if you do have to go out for some reason, you wear some kind of protective layer over over your mouth and nose so that you don't infect other people. We've been doing this inside of emergency rooms. So the fact of the matter is that we have just essentially changed our perspective, although the actual guidance has never really changed. All that's happened now is we have more TikTok videos of how to actually make a scarf out of a handkerchief. <laughs> We have with us Jason Tetro. He is on the line. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, answering your questions about COVID-19. And uh, I would imagine some people have questions about masks and uh, the use of masks. And uh, Jason, just before we go to the phone lines, wanted to put a question to you. Uh, This is from a caller. uh, Didn't want to go on the air, but is questioning about cloth masks. And I would imagine this goes for scarves like you've talked about as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wondering if you should immediately wash them every time you come home. Um, actually, you have to first take them off properly. So you take them off by the straps, and then you're going to put it into um, some kind of receptacle that you're not going to touch. And then after that, if you want to put hot water with some soap into it, that's fantastic. Um, you can also put it in your laundry as long as you're using hot water, maybe some bleach. Um, that's not a problem. If you don't want to do that, though, then don't touch that mask again for three days. Done. All right. There we go. Let's go to the phone lines, and Kim has a question. Kim, what's your question? Uh I have two cats, and uh, I was in a hospital, and they both got sick. Can the animals get sick if I have that uh, disease but don't, uh, isn't showing anything? The coronavirus um, can get into uh, uh, mammals like cats and, and dogs, um, but it doesn't seem to be making them very sick. It just seems to be making them positive. Usually it's weakly positive. So I think that you can still get away with cuddling uh, your, your kitties. And well, I mean, I'm worried right? about people going to the store, like me going to the store. Oh, you going to the store. Um, well, I mean, you want to be maintaining that six-foot distance anyways. Okay, okay. Yeah. I just don't want to get anybody else sick. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't think you need to worry about that. All right. Thanks for that call. Appreciate that. Let's go to uh, Erica on the line. Erica, what are your what is your question? My question is, Jason, why are there such differences in the cases? Why are some cases so mild, and why are some so severe, or can even cause death? Is it is some of it the mode of transmission, like direct being coughed on, or maybe indirect touch and then touch yourself? Is that the reason? Yeah, yes, possibly. See, the problem is we don't know exactly what's happening when in the most of the severe cases. Um, but you're right, um, what we call viral load, in other words, how much of a virus is being transferred over. Now, if it's somebody who's very close to you, you're going to get much more than, say, if you pick it up off of a surface. So you're right in that sense. 
But the viral load is just one possible option. Um, we are seeing potentially um, people who have immunity to other types of coronaviruses that are not doing the job. And in some cases, it might be making it worse. So really, at this point, um, what we do know is that if you happen to have those pre-existing conditions, that hypertension, diabetes, kidney problems, lung problems, we're starting to now see um, what's called oxidative stress. So that could be anxiety, depression, burnout, obesity. Those are all potential uh, factors that could lead to more severe disease, even in the young. Um, and of course, if you happen to be over the age of 65, unfortunately, your risks do get much greater when it comes to this virus. All right. Uh, thanks for that question. And Jason, just something you mentioned earlier, too. So it, it different than SARS, how you mentioned this might be part of the yearly vaccines. Why would we see that? Or why do you think we might see uh, COVID sticking around, whereas SARS was eradicated? SARS was a killer killer. Um, ever since January, when this came out, I've always been saying it's not SARS, it's SARS-like. Um, but we're finding out more and more as we're moving along that this is more like a common cold than it is SARS. But it still has that, that SARSness to it, if you will, that can really um, harm people who have these pre-existing conditions. Um, what's happening now, though, is that we're seeing that, that, that list growing and growing um, simply as a result of the, the types of cases that are becoming severe. Uh, but in terms of SARS, because it was such a killer, we stamped it out. In other words, we were able to lock everything down so that the virus just went away. In this particular case, and you know how I talked about targeted testing, well, that means we're not testing everybody, which means that the virus may actually be circulating out in the real world, but nobody's coming down with symptoms or they have mild symptoms. They think they got a common cold. And so that particularly is, is difficult when you think about it because we're accepting that maybe, just maybe, we're not going to stamp it out, but we're going to let it circulate much like those other seasonal viruses. And do we know at this point, because one of the questions earlier on was also, if you've had it once, do you have immunity to it? At this point, what we know is that you will make uh, antibodies to it, but the question then becomes, are the antibodies going to be able to prevent uh, infection? What we've seen before from other viruses, uh, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, influenza virus, and even the previous uh, coronaviruses that everybody used to know, OC43 and 229E, you could still get infected, but it would be a mild infection. So this is what we're starting to think might happen, is that you will get the opportunity to develop the um, antibodies to protect yourself, but you may still end up with a sore throat or a little bit of pain in, in uh, your sinuses, but nothing, nothing, nothing like what we're seeing in the severe cases. Uh, so it really will be with this targeted testing, like you said, there will be people who have had this who have fully recovered and, and don't know for sure that they had this. So that, and, and those people will never be included in the numbers. Exactly. The ones that we're seeing right now is all targeted. And it's really just to give us an idea of who's popping out of the population. It's the best way to do it, to be honest. Um, and if we, you know, if other countries like the UK had done their social distancing sooner than what they originally had planned, which is kind of what BC is doing now, would have worked. It just didn't because they didn't catch it in time. BC did. Um, but in terms of all the people, we're going to have eventually what's called a serological test. We're going to be able to test for antibodies. So if you've ever experienced this virus, even if you didn't have any symptoms, you'll have antibodies. And then we'll have a real indication as to how much of the population actually had the virus. And then that will give us a much better indication of 
uh, how many people really, uh, the, the, the case fatality rate, if you want to call it, um, and, and whether or not this really is, um, you know, 10 times more deadly than the flu, or maybe it was about the same as the pandemic flu from 10 years ago. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Jason, thanks again. Always great to have you on the show. Always a pleasure. Take care. All right. That is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. If you didn't get through on the open line, if you still have a question for Jason, email it to me, jill at cknw, and I will pass it along for you.